I'm Brendan Madigan, and this is Afterglow, a mountain storytelling podcast. We're back for episode four with climbing author Deirdre Wallenick. If the name doesn't sound familiar to you, you aren't alone. Wallenick is Deirdre's maiden name, but she is indeed the mother of Alex Honnold, the greatest rock climber to ever grace the sport. While we do talk about Alex, Deirdre's story is much deeper, and she also has a much different origin story than most of our guests. Having grown up in a post-World War II Polish immigrant family in New York City, she struggled to break the mold of what children, and particularly girls, were allowed to do. In her mid-twenties, Wallenick made the decision to move to California, where she married and began a family. But the struggle continued, and she tells us that she longed for connection her entire life. Deirdre and I talk about her ultimate redemption, which she discovered through rock climbing and running. It was through these sports that Deirdre experienced a rebirth. Deirdre's tale is a beautiful one in which the phoenix does indeed rise, in her case, up the proverbial walls of Yosemite Valley as the oldest woman to ever summit El Capitan. You grew up in Queens in the 1950s, right? Yeah, yeah after the war. Yeah. Can yeah. you tell us a little bit about that? Well, it was a, it was a great time to grow up in New York because New York was well the whole country was still reeling from the war, you know, World War Two, but and everybody was so elated for that to be over. I right. guess and you know lots and lots of kids, you know, the baby boomers happened after the war, and people were from all over the world. You know, New York was filled with, I guess now we'd call them immigrants. They mm-hmm. didn't think of themselves as immigrants, but. Uh, or, um, what was the term I used last night? Um, displaced people. Displaced persons. And, yeah, they yeah. called them displaced persons. And so every every house on my block was, you know, different nationality, different languages, different music, different foods. It was it was amazing. And so that's how I grew up. And uh, so I assumed that that was normal, you know, for everybody. And so I, I wound up a, a linguist, and uh, language just stayed with me all my life. I, I've taught languages all my life. Because of that influence? Well, largely, that fed it. You know, I, had a, I have a, a general, I guess, an innate propensity to, you know, to decode language e- more easily than some people, because in school, that's really taught out of you, because, you know, school is monolingual here, anyway, in this country. And so my brother didn't, he grew up in the same house, he didn't learn any languages, but, uh, but he, he's, he's the math brain. He got the math gene, and I got the language he gene. He got that language. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah, that is a language. Right. Uh, it was an amazing time to grow up in New York City. New York was becoming, you know, just like I was. <laughs> New York was becoming. It was growing up, because the, the New York of then was is so different from the New York of now. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed New York City to the fullest. Anything you want in New York is there, in space, any day, any time of day or night. So it, it was amazing. The music was amazing because all the biggies, uh, you know, Leonard Bernstein used to give concerts in the park and, and, and all the big names of all the famous uh, violinists, they all played in Carnegie Hall. I used to go there. It was just, it fed all of the passions of my life at that time. You know, the music, the languages, the art. I used to spend a lot of my Sundays at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And cause I went to a specialized art high school high school of art and design in manhattan so my focus was you know on that one of my focuses <laughs> was on that right, too. you're a talented person yeah. yeah yeah so i used to spend a lot of time with my friends at the metropolitan or, or other there's so many museums in new york like 100 museums that surprised me when i moved to sacramento which is the capital of california right you know most populous state in the union california all i knew was the statistics you know when i moved here and it's the capital. I expected a place like New York City, you know. And it was, it was a swamp. <laughs> one museum. <laughs> and, and that one was very small. I was really surprised. Right. But your childhood was, you know, tough. You talk it, it was tough. In yeah, the book yeah. about your, you yeah. know, how your parents raised you. and Yeah, um, it was the Eastern European old country mindset of, you know, children are to be seen and not heard. You have all the adults expected of us was obedience. If you obeyed and you didn't make any trouble, you were good. <laughs> if you made trouble with your parents for your parents, you were bad. You know, that's, that's basically how it ran. Right. And we were just expected to obey and stay out of the way and keep quiet. And it, was your brother older or younger? Older. Older. And right. is he still alive? Yeah. Yeah. yeah where does he live in now? San Diego County. Oh, cool. But you also talk openly about your 
your parents in that old school yeah, yeah, rearing they, and and particularly their you know you speak to their lack of affection yeah it, it was they didn't lack for affection i mean they loved us to pieces you know they would have done they would have died for us i'm sure you know but they didn't know what to do about it they didn't know how to express it they didn't i mean they you know hug us to death and, and kiss us you know but they didn't relate to us as people do you think that was like a holdover from World War II? And... Uh, no, it was just the old country way. The, right, the Eastern just European a cultural way. thing. Yeah, adults, adults and children were two different breeds in that culture. And basically you didn't become an adult until you had your own children. Right. You know, or your parents died. That was Those were the rules. You know? Right. So we were children at 25. We were children. Right. Know? We still lived at home. It was, right. different. It was just a different mindset. Yeah, I still wonder if that adage holds true, you know, that you don't really become an adult until your parents pass well certainly there are a lot of things you don't understand until that happens but you can be an adult for crying out loud <laughs> right yeah i'd like to think <laughs> but not in their book yeah a you different know. kind of book yeah, yeah. How, how do you think that influenced your kind of development as a, a well, young person? I, I knew when i was like three and a half i knew that that was not the way i wanted to deal with any eventual children i might have you know i didn't know if i'd have kids i didn't didn't think about that but I, I knew that that was a lousy way to raise kids <laughs> you know I, I there was so much I wanted to experience with my mother and my parents and never could because they were the adults and they had walls they talked up down to us yeah yeah they talked down to us and they just expected us to obey and that's that right it was a different it was just a different mindset I, I mean they loved us to pieces but they just didn't know what to do about it right and there's also a part in the book you know that you speak openly about how that approach from your mother really played a pivotal role in in, in helping you write your story oh yeah for sure for sure she uh, you know my mother was she, she talked about being a writer she always wanted to write her book and all this stuff so i grew up hearing this it's know. a very beautiful part in the book i think that yeah the perfect night to die thing yeah she and I, I so wished that she had written her book, you know, that I had, had that I had that to read now, you know, right, or or at least parts of it while I was growing up, and, but she never did anything about that, right. You know, so, so I had that model of, don't wait until it's too late, right. You know, don't raise your kids like this. Don't. You can learn just as much from a bad example, if you want to call it that, mm -hmm. negative example, as you can from a good example. Maybe even more so because it hits home more, right. You know, and so I had all these lessons as I was growing up that that helped shape me as a parent, you know, later. Right. And as a writer, in fact. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's funny how life works like that. Yeah. We're all products of our environment. We are. We are. Yeah. yeah. And what you do with that is your own story. Right. But And some people handle it better than others. And some people go on and do write their book. And right. Some people don't. Yeah. Well, and that's why it was one of the reasons we started this podcast, too, is to say, take... Um, Yvonne Chouinard or someone like mm -hmm. that who is, you know, starting to hit their golden years and mm -hmm. might not be around forever. And right. I think there's a lot of power in capturing these powerful audio stories so that they're exactly. timeless. They become timeless, right? Exactly. And they become instructional tools for... They become ever. accessible to anybody, anytime. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But your book is called The Sharp End of Life. Mm-hmm. What, what does that mean to you? As a climber, of course, you understand that. The sharp end is the leader's end of the rope. It's the more dangerous end. It's the more demanding end of the rope. The leader takes more risks than the follower in a climb. They call that the sharp end of the rope. A fall at the sharp end is far more consequential. You know, you, you could get hurt, you could die, you could hit something. So my entire life was, until recently, was kind of the sharp end of my life. Um, everything was hard really hard for a long time then there was that black hole period was really hard for a good number of years and then finally i came out of that so that's what that means the sharp end so it's your metaphor exactly yeah and i love that that you speak so deeply about your drive or maybe your newfound drive in these mountain pursuits i think you always had it with your intellectual career and you know, being a good parent, but where do you think that drive comes from? Well, I always did have it. I mean, when I was in school, when we'd go out like on class trips and stuff, we'd go out into the country, you know, we we're from New York City, so anywhere was out into the country. Right. And they often took us upstate to like uh, Bear Mountain State Park and that. we'd always go hike, hiking off into the woods. And I, I always led my group of friends. I kind of acknowledged that I knew what 
to do, where to go, how to go there, you know, that kind of thing. So I guess I was an outdoor person at heart, you know, and I always, any chance I had that would come out, you know, mm -hmm. but I lived in New York City, not a whole lot of chance for that to come out. You right. know? And I always liked climbing too. I loved climbing trees and I hung out with the boys in the neighborhood basically because their life was more fun. You know, we'd go climb on the garage roof and, you know, hop off the tree and get on the roof and go hide in the the roof. It was just more fun. Right. And so I always had that leaning. Which really wasn't permitted for no, girls, right? No, exactly. I was supposed to wear a dress, darn it. I was supposed to, you know, behave myself, be a proper little girl. Right. Do you think that's changed today's day and age? That you, sentiment? The expectations? Yeah. Well, it's changed in that, you know, the demographic has changed. I mean, these people were all from the old country. In New York City, I think this is probably still a little true, but in New York City and in California, people dress completely differently. People are far more formal in the city. And back then, I mean, I never, ever saw my father without his shiny shoes and a hat if we left the house. And my, my mother never left the house without her white gloves and a purse. And, you know, so it was far more formal. So nowadays, it's very different in that. Right. You know, those expectations are very different. I don't know about the rest. I'll have to go back right. someday and find out. <laughs> but I think, you know, it's a, it's a timely point in the you know, the age of Me Too and, you know, gender, hopefully, equity and yeah. at least moving in that direction. It is here in this country. I don't know if it is elsewhere. Mm -hmm. You know, that remains to be seen, I guess. Like in Japan, when I got pregnant, when we were living in Japan, I got fired. That's just, that's, that's the way it was. Wow. You're pregnant, you can't teach. Uh, nobody wants to look at a pregnant lady in front of their classroom. So I was fired and nobody batted an eye <laughs> except me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just the way it was. Right. I, I wonder if it's still like that. I'd love to go back and talk with people and see if it's still like that. Well, it's kind of crazy too. It makes me think of, you know, well, one, how terrible that is, but two, the body dysmorphia that occurs. But when you look historically, you have something like, you know, Venus of Elendorf, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Very fertile, like. Right. 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 And, you know. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the European culture. This is not. Japan is very, very different. Right, very different. They don't different. have that European, the history of like la courtoisie, uh, the courtly manners and, you know, all that stuff. They don't mm -hmm. have that. I never, in the four years that I lived there, you, you've probably seen pictures of the, the pushers and the Jap Japanese subways. It's really, really packed. In the four years I lived there, I never got a seat on the subway from any man, even when I was pregnant, largely pregnant. The only person, one time I think somebody got up for me and it was a woman. You know, they just don't have that background. Right. So yeah, their approach to that kind of thing is very different. Hmm. You see very early on in the book that by 26, you realize you had never had a quote unquote normal yeah. relationship. Yeah. What does that mean to you today? It's the past. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I outgrew that. I realized it and left it behind, you know, but in the household I grew up in, it really wasn't possible. Right. You know, I was my mother's arms and legs from... You know, she was handicapped. Right, she had polio. Not, not totally, but, you know, she couldn't do a lot of things. She depended on her little girl, you know, to do all that stuff for her. Run up and down the cellar stairs, go get the laundry, go, you know, take. Yeah, it was a different mindset, and, and it was perfectly valid for them, for there, for then, for that time, you know, and uh, even necessary for her. Right. You know? The old world way, I mean, that's why the old world parents had lots of kids. That they needed them to help on the farm, to help do the chores, you know, to run around and, you know, do all the work that was required. So, you know, it was a different mindset. Nowadays, we don't have children to help. We have children because we want to have children and love them and all that stuff. And, and it's a very totally different approach, you know, to child raising. I would imagine a lot of your drive came from that, too, because you didn't have a it was just ingrained in you that you had to oh, yeah. help your mother. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I stayed home most of the time and, uh, you know, listened for her call. And, and while I was doing that, I was reading and painting and learning how to play the piano and the accordion and the, all this stuff. And so I became pretty accomplished, I guess you call it, in, in a lot of endeavors. You know, I went to a specialized art high school. I went to the parochial school, you know, the, the nuns for, for, we didn't call it elementary. The public school kids called it elementary. We called it grammar school. Right. So uh, after grammar school, I went to that special, you know, to art and design in Manhattan. And uh, that started enlarging my world. 
Right. You know, every day I, I'd take the at 13, I'd have to take the subway to school every day and go into Manhattan. It's a totally different world. We lived in Queens. There were still farms back then in Queens. You know, it was quiet and just houses. Well, not just houses, but, but it was quiet and... Quieter than the, op- the Wide island. open, yeah. yeah. And then I'd go into Manhattan every day and experience this new world. It just opened my world completely. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, you're a master of liberal arts, yeah. poster child. Yeah. Language, music, art. Mm-hmm. It's great. But in the book, you also speak, you know, openly about how you long for connection. Yeah. Your yeah. entire life. and. Yeah. And I really appreciate that about the story, framing your life and kind of bouncing back in time to your marriage, to your present life and, mm. and using uh, climbing and running, you know, the passions of your kids mm. as a conduit to right. create, to foster that connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I often wonder if it would have happened anyway, you know, without the sports. I don't know. Right. But uh, it was a wonderful jumping off point, if you want to call it that. Mm hmm. And it's, they've taught you a lot. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah, I've learned so much from my kids. They get sick of hearing about that, but, <laughs> but it's so true. You know, if I hadn't had them, my life would be totally different, totally mm-hmm. different in so many ways. When you found that connection amongst your climbing friends, too, how did that change things for you? In just about every way possible. <laughs> you know, I now had friends to do things with, and I now had friends to learn these new endeavors from, and you know, I had a mentor or two among the climbing, my, my climbing tribe, I call them. And, uh, and of course, just physically, we were going outdoors all the time. It was great. And I got to explore places of, in Northern California and other places where I would never have gone otherwise. I wouldn't have known to go to these places or been able to go to these places. Climbers go to the most gorgeous places on the planet. And the only way to get there is to climb. Or, you know, hike in and climb up. Yeah, everything would be, would have been different. Everything. Right. We're lucky. Yeah. <laughs> that we we were able to cho- chose these, choose these sports, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I had or no maybe idea. maybe they chose us, I don't know. Yeah. Can you explain why a parent would take up the passions of their children? Because that was kind of, you know, you talk about your dark period from 2001 to 2007 and... Mm-hmm. I think it's very admirable you speak openly about staying in a tough marriage for mm-hmm. the benefit of your kids who were your everything and then to come out of the other end of that and to find meaning and mm-hmm. identity mm-hmm. and whatever through their passions must have been pretty cool. Well, yeah, it was their passions, but I loved them too. You know, I, I, I was a climber when I was a little girl. I wasn't supposed to be, but apparently the gene is there. You know, I, I did like it. And I always loved the outdoors. You know, I loved hiking when I was a little kid, bigger kid, and, you know, college kid. I right. always loved going out of the outdoors. So it was there. It was latent, if you will. It was latent. And this was like an excuse to let it out, let it give it free reign. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, I think, for people who maybe don't understand the rewards of oh, existing oh. in the mountains, right? And. I went through a learning curve with my parents and they finally came to grips with understanding Mm. the lifestyle because they saw how alive it made me. Yeah. Yeah. That was an interesting process. Yeah. uh, Because for all those years, especially those dark years, I I saw how uh, happy and at peace my kids were doing these activities and, and how it kind of fed their soul brought them into their happy place, if you will, whatever you want to call that. And uh, I wanted some of that. You know, I didn't have any of that really in my life right then. Yeah, I tried a little of this and a little of that, and they were very eager to share that with me, both of them. I, I'll never be a very good climber, but Alex still does take me out and takes me off stuff, and and it, it's been an amazing process. Right. When I think, too, you always say, like, oh, in the book, I shouldn't be here. I'm not a real climber, yeah, but you very yeah. much are. Yeah, you know? I know, I know. I, since I started so old, you know, I, I will, didn't start climbing until I was 58. And um, running at 55. And running at 55, yeah. And, and so by that age, you're pretty much set in life. <laughs> you you kind of know that whatever you do, it's your fault, you know. <laughs> you're responsible for everything you do. And so 
I knew, quote unquote, that you know I wasn't an athlete. I I couldn't breathe well enough, and I'd never done this, never done that. So I I had all these limits from my past in my mind, you know. Constructs. Yeah, yeah. And uh, little by little, I started smashing those to bits, and finding that those are not actually my own limits. You know, mm-hmm. I I didn't know where my limits lay. In fact, and so I just started pushing that, like like Alex does. You know. If you can run one mile, you can run two. You know, (laughs) if you can run a half a marathon, maybe you can run a whole marathon. This was a a new concept for me at that age. And maybe arguably we'd never quite know our limits, right? That's exactly right. I think that's That's the whole, that's the beautiful take home from your, from your mm -hmm. message. Just keep pushing those limits as long as you are able, you know? Because I think the person who doesn't know the story, they might read, you know, Deirdre's the the oldest woman to climb El Cap at 66. But, you know, in your book, you talk about how you started running a mile uh-huh. just to uh-huh. clean the cobwebs out after a long day of being a mom and struggling at the house. And mm-hmm. so that's tremendously inspiring for anyone. Oh, good. Yeah. Good. I'm, glad, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> it's just my life. It's yeah. always nice to know how it's received. Yeah. No, and you talk openly, too, about using those sports as a way to deal with the tricky hand that we're dealt in life and uh, yeah exactly tricky hand that's a good way to put it <laughs> yeah. a lot of tricky hands in my life but i dealt with it by moving by you know adapting and i think it's a if people don't climb or don't backcountry ski or don't climb mountains you know they or run or bike or, or whatever and they don't understand that passion it's it's more than just a passion for gardening and its meditative state it's a transcendental right journey right exactly it's your key into whatever that state is you want to call it transcendence or bliss or religion whatever yeah religion whatever you want to call that state that zone if you will you know they call it a zone sometimes a flow state flow state exactly whatever transports you into that flow state or whatever it is that's what you want to push your limits on Right. Yeah. And you write at length about how Alex was able to assess risk from mm. a very young age. You know, there's yeah. a specific story in the book where 10 months old, he's yeah. disappeared and you yeah. see him standing on top of the 10 foot slide or something mm-hmm. in the backyard. That's how he learned how to walk. That's, a, that's how I learned that he knew how to walk. Right. Yeah. And, I, you know, it's always interesting because you say people always want to ask me, how can you be Alex's mom? But you have a very long track record of oh, dealing yeah. with his Oh, yeah. Sorry, the day right? he was born. The day he was born, he could stand up. People don't believe me when I say this, but and unfortunately, everybody, everybody who was around is dead now. <laughs> but if you know, let him you know, place him on your knees and let him, baby's hands grasp all the time, they open and close. And if you let him hold on to your pinky, he would stand up. Just, he wouldn't stay there. You know, he couldn't stay standing. He was a little newborn, you know, but uh, like at 12 hours old, he could propel himself upward. So he had amazingly strong thighs, and he had these huge mitts, big hands that everybody commented on. So he was built for that. Mm -hmm. You know, he was built for that. So, yes, I started going through that from his birth onward. And and before he could walk, you know, I'd put him on the floor. I could put a baby on the ground on a mat and... He was never there when I would <laughs> turn, around. turn around to pick him up. He was never there. He was trying to climb up on something, you know, before he could walk. So, yeah, it's been a long haul. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I would imagine that practice, if you will, has made digesting his solo efforts a little easier. Yeah, it was very, very, what do you call it, uh, gradual. Yeah, but it's still, it still took me quite a while as... An adult, you know, I, when he was an adult, to really understand, to really let what he had done penetrate my mind, you know, at the deepest levels. I just, I just, I just didn't think about it. I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't accept for a long time that right. that that's what free soloing actually is. You know, can't nobody, nobody could do that. You know, conscious denial. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, not so much conscious, but I kept. I was so busy. You know, working lots of jobs, writing for lots of places, you know, magazines, newspapers, and teaching, and taking care of several houses. And I'd start to think about it, and then I'd just go do something else. You know, another job. I'd be taken by some other endeavor, and I'd just, yeah. <laughs> not it's not so much conscious denial, but denial for sure. <laughs> right, maybe subconscious. Yeah, You're right. <laughs> right. 
And how does it sit with you now, now that you've, well, you know, versed yourself? Well, in... that's that's part of why I started climbing. I wanted to know what it was like out there, you know, what he was doing when he would leave on, on an expedition or a climbing trip. I found out really fast <laughs> what goes on out there. But that was the best antidote against the fear because our imaginations are amazingly fertile when it comes to, like, mom stuff, you know, worrying about kids out, out there in the world, in that dangerous, dark world. And so... I discovered as I went out myself to climb with my friends and, you know, climb different things, I discovered how much worse my imagination was than, than the actual fact. And so that helped me to absorb a little bit more of what he does. Right. And so, yeah, that's been a good antidote to the to the worry gene, kind of, the mom worry gene. Kind of put some of that to rest. Not all of it, but... Right. I can, I can you wouldn't be human can, if it put it all right, to rest. Right. I can right. handle the rest. I can shut down the rest because I know I can. It's funny because that's the one part of the book I wanted to read because I think it's so beautiful, right? Like there's nothing more powerful in life than your relationships with your, I would imagine, kids, kids or uh-huh. spouse, your friends. Close, your close connections. Yep, yeah, your yeah. kind of inner circle. And, and you write that imagination can be a terrible thing mm-hmm. without it. I'd be leading far harder climbs, but I would never have dreamed up the adventures I've had with and without Alex. Without imagination, my friend who fell off his free solo climb this summer would still be around to laugh and climb with me, but we never would have met. Mm -hmm. Without it, my son wouldn't be on the cover of National Geographic, and would he really be alive the way he is now, or would he be biding time like so many of us? Dying takes many forms, and so does living. The hard part is recognizing them. Mm. I think that's a great passage. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And so true. Right. I mean, so many people out there are just biding time, mm-hmm. staying safe until the end. Right. And that was my that was my parents. They were all about security. You don't don't rock the boat. You know, we have a nice little house. Let's not risk anything. Don't you know? Don't do that. Don't no. That's too dangerous you know everything was too dangerous but they had lived through horrible war for years right. you know so i i can understand where that came from right you know and my father had, well both of them had lived through the depression and then a horrible war double and my father was from hell's kitchen which was terribly rough back then you know it's very gentrified now hell's kitchen in new york city but back then it was all gangs and warfare and you know it was horrible mm-hmm. his stories were awful Named after Dante's Inferno for a reason, right? Yeah, right, yeah. right, exactly. It's fascinating to me as well because people in the outside world, right, mainstream population, see something like mountain climbing, rock climbing, ultra running, whatever you want to, whatever modicum there exists. Mm. But then let alone what Alex does, which, yeah. and that's a really which cool... Which is way out there. Yeah. yeah, it's a really cool part in the movie where Tommy says, yeah, the, the people who kind of know what he's yeah. doing are like, oh yeah, he's safe. He's, and then right. the people who really know what's going on, they're saying, they're that is so yeah. fucking scary. Yeah, exactly. You know? exactly. Um, how do we walk that line of portraying a life well-lived, right? And not just, yeah. do you regret that at the end? If you don't, I don't know. I think a lot of people will never get that. Their search for security is stability is so strong, overarching, if you will, overrides everything else. And they'll never get that. They're the ones on the forum who write those scathing comments. Like he's so wrong for doing these things. Doesn't he think about his family, you know, and all right. this stuff? It's a different mindset. You can't just change everybody's mind, but. No. Particularly internet trolls. But yeah. I think it's a very beautiful thing because normally we're talking about. How do you convince people that this is living a truly realized life? And yeah, you as yeah. a parent and now a climber really have a great insight into that. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I guess I do. I never thought about it that way. I don't think you can really convince people of anything. They have to come to it themselves. That's why it's so important to have like national parks and protected lands for people to enjoy, to go out and see what nature is like, see how wonderful it can be. I mean, most kids who grow up in the city, you know, like New York City or San Francisco or even Portland, they never get out into nature. And that that shapes your mindset for your life. And we fear the unknown. That's human nature. And so if nature is unknown to you, you're not going to appreciate it 
or want to save it, want to bother saving it because you, you don't know it or experiencing it yourself. Right. So it's self-perpetuating and we have to fight that. And I think it's a Gaston Rebuffat quote that fear is the mind killer. For sure. For sure. And it's I think it's very telling with mountain people. A lot of people live in fear, especially people in cities and very staid, stable kind of life. We've in fear of that being disrupted, fear of losing what they have, fear of whatever. There's so much fear involved in life. Once you get out there and start beating that fear down, you realize that you can beat it down and you can make it go away. And it's tremendously instructional. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And it's so freeing, you know, liberating. Because I, I never really thought about fear before. Once I got on the rock, <laughs> outdoors, real rock, I started learning really fast about how to talk yourself through the fear. Like Alex says, to expand your comfort zone to, until it's no longer fearsome for you. And that's something that we all need to learn, really. But a lot of people never do. Right. Which is sad. Which is sad, yeah. Sad for them. And with all the data coming out these days with hormonal changes and chem chemical changes, blood chemistry changes, when you're right. in nature. When you're in the zone, especially. Yeah. 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 I think that's great about your story because you don't have to be 25 and, no. and super fit. You Anybody can, can and, do this. Anybody yeah. can do this, yeah. It was interesting to me, and I kind of wondered, you know, you talk about Charlie and his, if it was today, maybe autism or Asperger's or something, yeah, some something diagnosable kind of yeah. label and that he was really only happy when he was traveling. Right. And that was his, that was his passion, right? Right. Considering Alex's innate draw to climbing, do you worry about that with him? No, 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 Alex. No, not at all. No, Alex has mastered the human connection and all that goes with that. No, not at all. Right. No, it was an illness with Charlie. Yeah, I can see too that Alex is so intelligent. He could just have well as been. He could a, teach himself out of anything. Right, philosopher, right. neuroscientist, right. or something. Have you seen a big change in Alex now that he has a partner in his life? Yeah, it's a a, a slow evolution, not a big change all of a sudden. But yeah, she's been good for him, and he's been good for her. Right, they're wonderful together. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know her, but it seems like a great juxtaposition of. Personality. Yeah, she's a real people person, and, mm -hmm. and, and he's not. <laughs> she's very diplomatic and sweet, and he's not. <laughs> you know, Alex pulls no punches. He calls it like it is, whatever arena we're talking about. And so they're they're very they're a well balanced match. Right, kind of like his sister was growing up. You said right. Yeah, yeah, uh huh. In yeah. many ways. And I always appreciated that in the book. Of course, everyone knows you as Alex Honnold's mom, but you're very, also Stacia's mom. Exactly. Right, you're right. very quick to say, oh, so this other amazing child who's right. done these amazing things. Right. That must make you pretty proud. Yeah, I got two really overachieving kids <laughs> out in the world. Right. Does it bother you at all that people refer to you as Alex Honnold's mother and not Deirdre? No. No, that's that's natural. I mean, they know him, and they're surprised and astounded by him. And so, I come with the package, as right. it were. You know, no, not at all. It's a package deal. The package deal, right? Yeah, I'm very proud to be Alex Honnold's mom. Right. I thought it was pretty telling that in the movie Free Solo, Alex talked a lot about perfectionism in yeah. his life. Yeah, he was always a perfectionist from a little child. And kind of, you know, he used some very strong words like self-loathing drives yeah, me to per yeah. perfection and, and no, he was he doesn't see it you know with my perspective but he was always a perfectionist from birth you yeah. know if he couldn't do something perfectly he would get very frustrated and rip it up or throw it out or whatever he was doing and, and do something else you know he'd get very anno annoyed at himself you know so he was always i didn't have to make him like that he was always like that it you know had nothing to do with me yeah he a lot of his musings in the movie he knows now that that was way off target. You know, a lot of the things he said about the, the warrior culture, and uh, he now it makes him cringe. You know, right? And that's I think that's part of that. He was figuring things out. Right. And there's a part in the book where you speak to that specifically about yeah. he couldn't draw these characters in his head, so he asked you to. Oh yeah, yeah, right. And it was never quite oh, good that's right. enough. That's right. That's in the book. I forgot. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the book went through so many permutations that I forget how it actually wound up, right. yeah. <laughs> what actually made it into the final copy of the book. But yeah, there's a little scene about that, and, and I would help if I could, but you can't. You can't help a perfectionist. Right. They are what they are. Yeah. 
and he has grown out of it a little bit in some ways, but that is what allows him to free solo. That perfectionist attitude is what got him up the rocks so well. And I, I hope he draws that same conclusion now, now that he's an adult and you know, can right. take it through. You know, he was like that as a baby, a two-year-old. It had to be perfect. And that's what free soloing is. It has to be perfect or you die. Right. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> that's what it comes down to. Yeah, he was always like that. So it's no surprise that it wound up this way, you know, mm -hmm. not at all. But back then, I could never have imagined such a thing. Well, and I related to it, too, because I, I very much exist in that realm in my personal life. And I've always wondered, is this a gift or a curse or and yes, why am I both. this way or nothing's both. ever quite good enough or yeah. maybe that's too negative it can always be better right well that cool that drives you that pushes you to be better to to strive if you will so yeah it's definitely a, both a curse and a, a great advantage you know mm -hmm. you will accomplish things in life that way right as Alex says in the movie nobody ever accomplished anything great by being happy and cozy Right. You know, you have to be striving to do that. It's a different mindset. Most people on the planet are not striving. They're just existing, you know, existing, yeah. making do. You know, he calls that the warrior mindset, but he doesn't call it that anymore. You know, he's graduated from that. Right. In the book, you talk a lot about learning how to trust your children, yeah. both of them, yeah. regardless of whatever yeah. they're doing. Do you think that's a natural transition for a parent? To a point, it is. All parents at some point in their lives with their kids have to learn to, you know, trust them for child care or, or buying a house or whatever. You know, you have to learn to at least value their judgment to a certain point. But the sports that my kids are in kind of push that to the extremes. Alex, when I go up the rocks with Alex, it's, my life is in his hands. I know this, you know. If he does anything stupid, we're both going to die, you know, or, or get really hurt. And so I trust him. He trusts me to follow him and you know carry through so to a certain extent it's in everybody's lives anybody who has children but this does c kind of push it to the extremes and in the book too you talk about letting him be him from the beginning yeah. right yeah not treating him like other parents yeah this him. this is a conscious choice on my part too right because he was different from as i said different from birth you know from and a lot of the other mothers, like when they were in preschool or, you know, whatever, tiny tot time they went to, you know, Sacramento and, and pre-kindergarten you know, and all that stuff, um, a lot of the other parents didn't appreciate, shall we say, what Alex was like because he was different. He wasn't interested in playing soccer with the kids or playing this, playing baseball. He just wanted to climb stuff. And to them, this was unacceptable. And so I got all kinds of advice, you know, take him to the doctor, get him diagnosed I don't know with what they were had in mind, but or get him put on drugs so he would be more normal, you know. Whatever that is. Whatever that is. They had their own version of normal, and uh, Alex didn't fit that. And so I got all kinds of advice. It was very isolating for me to not listen to them, to not buy into this, their version of normal, and to let him be what he was. I could see he was a wonderful young man and a wonderful little boy, and he was just a delight. Both of them were delights to, to hang out with all day, and I was home with them all day, every day. And we had a great time together. I could see he was a, a wonderful little boy, but he didn't buy into other people's version of normal in terms of you know what he liked to do. So I just had to learn to, what's the word, not ignore, but... Go with the flow. Go maybe. with the flow, you know, yeah. let him be his own self. Well, that's got to be rewarding for you now. That yeah, you did it yeah, your way. Yeah, exactly. And you have this, these I two made these choices, kids. and these choices are now validated, which is really, really nice. Right. Yeah, yeah. Tremendously I, successful kids. I imagine that when my, if my kids ever have kids, they'll they'll kind of appreciate that, realize what, how it was back then. Right. Yeah. I think so. I think that's what kids do. And yeah. It might they teach you. All kinds of things. Right, but it goes the other way too, of course, right. where you have found myself where I've gotten to a certain point in life and thought, yeah, my parents really knew what they were talking about. Yeah. They Isn't that a nice very, moment? <laughs> yeah. And, and you stop, you don't fight it. Now and, you're really an adult, right? <laughs> yeah, hopefully, but I guess you never quite know. You also talk in the book about the struggle of your marriage. And I think it's tremendously admirable that you stayed in it for the kids. What advice would you give to someone listening who is struggling in their own relationship? Um, every case is different. It's hard to give pat advice to anybody. Yeah. You have to really just think it through and 
make your own choice for what you think is the best, not necessarily for you at the moment, but for everybody else involved, you know, in my case, the kids, because it was, it was always very tricky to leave the kids with him, made my choices, and yeah, you have to consider your surroundings as well. I had no people on the West Coast, just my husband's family, and so my family was back East. I couldn't take my kids back east, you know, you can't do that with marriage, you can't just separate them by 3,000 miles, so so I had no, no real options, you know, I had stayed home with the babies, as it were, and so I did and didn't have a full-time job, and I wasn't bringing in a lot of money, so, you know, I had no options there either, so you have to consider all of your options, and what the ramifications of those options will be down the road, so it was a hard choice, but uh, they always are. Mm-hmm. It's got to be special to climb with Alex. It is, it is. As a mother son yeah. it's got to be a great it's dynamic. always a learning experience just to see how it, the first few times it was i was amazed to watch him climb he's just so good and so at home on the rock like a mountain goat you know he just scampers all around the rock like he's on the sidewalk you know that's how he sees it right he often described the, our future climbs that way to me his mom is like it's like walking on the sidewalk you know, do you ever fall off the sidewalk? Yeah. To him, that's what it's like. Right. To me, not so much. <laughs> Perspective. <laughs> not so much. So, yeah, it was amazing to watch him climb. It's just, it's a real treat. Few people ever get to do that, you know, right. watch Alex Arnold climb. And I learned a, a lot about climbing myself from watching how he does things. And he does things, a lot of things within that world of climbing. He does a lot of things differently than my own climbing tribe, you know, my own climbing friends at home in Sacramento. They go by the book and they taught me to do things by the book. This is how you make this kind of knot. This is how you attach this and that, you know, and this is what you use in this case. Well, Alex doesn't always do things that way, you know, the uh, traditional, shall we say, Mm -hmm. way. And so I've learned a lot from him about how to not so much cut corners, but go faster, go more efficiently, you know, do things differently. And my friends kind of frown on some of those practices. But um, but I've learned with Alex and some of his friends out there that they work as well, you know. So it's been a real education right. with him. Well, and it's got to be rewarding from a instructional point of view. But yeah. then when it's all said and done, you get to, I mean, get to I hang would out say, with my boy. exactly, yeah. even less people climb with their parent than see Alex Honnold climb. Right. Right. Yeah, Alex doesn't know another mom and son team out there. Right. He knows a female climber and dad team. You know, there are several of those, but no, uh, none the other way around. Right. At least at, at last time I talked to him anyway. And he knows everybody. So right. I trust, you know, that there aren't a lot of us out there doing right. this. Right. Constantly raising the bar. I really like the part in the book that you talk about your transformation specifically on the ascent of Mount Kness, which is a oh, nearly 13,000 foot peak in the Yosemite backcountry. Yeah. Way, way back country. Yeah. Seven you, and a half miles out. Can you speak to that a little bit? Oh, it was exhausting. It was terrifying. And we wound up in a thunderstorm going up this alpine peak, which means there's nothing growing around us, nothing, just rock and us. We were four lightning rods going up this, like I said, almost 13,000 foot peak. Lightning was crashing all around us and the thunder was crashing all around us. It was horribly scary. And I'm slower than, they were, they were all young people and me, you know, grandma. So I knew that if anybody got zapped by lightning up there, it was going to be my fault. I was the reason we were taking so long to get to the top. There was no you couldn't go back down. You had to go to the top and over and down. Uh, so that was like, oh, I talked to myself a lot on that one. I, oh, God, that was scary. But uh, I learned that if, if you're in a cloud and you're climbing and, and the light, the lightning strikes and thunder booms, you can't tell where it's striking because the entire cloud lights up. And so we never knew if it was like right next to us or, you know, half a mile away. It was really terrifying. And then, of course, it started to snow and then it was hailing and the wind was, uh, it was crazy. But it opened more doors for you. Well, yeah, I, I, I learned that I could push be well beyond what I thought it could push. You learn, you know, in a situation like that, you learn that if you don't want to die, you just keep going, you know. And I didn't want to die out there. Just keep going. So I held on to the thing on Alex's backpack and just follow him out. <laughs> Alex doesn't understand. I mean, to him, that's cheating. Just hold on to, to accept any help from anybody. That's cheating in his book. But he's a perfectionist, and I'm less so. <laughs> and he'll learn that lesson too over time with his foundation or he with will. what whatever future speaking gigs or kids. Gigs yeah, or kids. yeah right. Yeah. What are you most grateful for in your life? My kids. 
I think it would probably narrow down to that. And a lot of my previous choices, going abroad and opening up my world like that, you know, those choices. Traveling. Traveling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Seeing different cultures. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I did my junior year of college in France, and that really opened my world. It was still totally European world at that point, because I was from New York City. New York, New York was almost totally European back then. It has changed dramatically in that, you know, in the last several decades, but back then it was all European, and so I grew up in a European world, then I went to France and discovered Europe on my own, and history, and, you know, walked on roads that the ancient Romans had walked on, things like that. But, uh, yeah, travels, so travel opened my world so much. I just read, read an amazing quote, something like, the world is a book, and those who don't travel read only one page, and that is so true. And it was uh, St. Augustine who said that, and this is like in the what, 1500s? This has always been true. And people who don't leave their little community, never travel, read only one page of this great book. I was intent on reading the whole book. <laughs> mm-hmm. Good for you. Oh, I want to go back about the the age point that you make in your book. Ah, age. I think it's because... Age is meaningless. Yeah, exactly, right? We have a broad scope of listenership, you know, different ages. And I really like the message that you tell about age and it's irrelevant. Yeah, it's just totally irrelevant. Yeah, if your body is willing, you know, to cooperate, to let you do stuff, age is totally meaningless. We have this culture that either venerates or denigrates whatever age you're in, but it's just so false, that whole approach. I knew this when I was a little kid. My parents were old when they were in their 40s. That's how they thought. You know, they accepted all these limits. They, they just sought security and nothing more. They were old in their approach to life, to everything, when they were in their 40s. And I knew that that was wrong. I knew that that was limiting and cut you off from so much of life, so much of the world. They didn't care. (laughs) They had a nice, tidy little life and world, and that was enough for them. But it wasn't enough for me. Right. They were reading one page. Right, exactly. Exactly. I mean, they. my father had traveled a lot during the war, though. And so to him, he couldn't wait to get back home and settle down. Right. You know, he was in the, the North African theater of World War II for like five years or something like that. Long time. You know, so he experienced a lot. So that colors everything. So I understood where they were coming from for, for that. And my mother lived through the, de- through the Depression and she was handicapped. And so, you know, so yes, security was very important to them. And, and it is to all of us, to a certain extent. We approach it differently. It's a lot different than slapping a high five and going on a road trip. A lot different different time a lot different and your folks are both passed away yeah Yeah. it was a difficult transition not that difficult no I I had already mourned them the loss of them you know years prior so no it wasn't that hard but it was hard like being an orphan I had already said goodbye to them you know when I left the east sort of kind of so no it wasn't as hard as it might have been most people who we chat with I always ask them whether they're a big mountain climber, or high altitude climber, or rock climber, runner, whatever. If you couldn't climb or run, would that, would life itself be enough? If I couldn't climb or run, I would bike. I would cycle or hike or, you know, no, there's always other stuff to do. I'd swim more, you know, no, there's always other stuff to do. But you have to keep active. I mean, the human body is made to move. And if you don't move, you'll lose it. You'll lose it to all kinds of bad things. So no, I I would just transition to other movements, other ways of movement. Right. And I'd write more. And I'd make more music. I'd maybe have another orchestra. Which is a great story. I miss I miss uh, the orchestra. I, you know, conducted for four years and I'd always wanted to do that. And it was so gratifying to, to, to do that. It was a different kind of experience I never thought I'd have. It was like the icing on the cake kind of thing. But you wanted to do it since the time you were a kid, right? Since I was little, yeah. I always wanted to conduct an orchestra. If I couldn't do all these other things, I might start another orchestra somewhere. Who knows? Right. Go back to painting. I miss painting, but I haven't had the the place or the time to set up everything and keep it going. So, yeah. Well, I think that's the beauty of life. You can always reinvent yourself. That's right. We're very complex creatures. That's right. How do you deal with regrets in your life? If you have no regrets, regrets are a waste of time. Regrets eat at you and 
They make you sad, and regrets are a waste of time. You did something wrong, okay, acknowledge it and move on. Don't do it again. That's I have no regrets. Right on. Yeah, yeah Dave Nettle, who's a mentor of mine and who's worked at the shop for a long time and helped build it into the place it is, he had a similar sentiment, and he said, I acknowledge the mistakes, you know, yeah. but it's it's gotten me where I am today. Exactly. And that's everything that matters. Without all those mistakes, you would be a different person. Right. If you like who you are, that can't be bad, right? Yeah. I don't think so. I can't thank you enough for driving through the blizzard. Yes, it was quite a blizzard, wasn't it? <laughs> the conversation we've had and the show that you give only scratches the surface of the book. Well, so you. I hope thank that you. people will listen and go out and buy the book and, you know, learn about your story because it's tremendously compelling and inspiring. Thank you. That's very good to hear. We all know Alex is inspiring, but you are as well. So thank you for that. Thank you for having me. Afterglow is recorded at the Pink Palace Recording Studio on the west shore of Lake Tahoe. Afterglow's production staff is a team of three. Myself, sound engineer Miles Heaps, and Kristen Hanna-Madigan, our producer and sound editor. The music of Season 3 is provided by the talented Old String Duo. Make sure to check them out on Instagram to listen to more of their work. Afterglow is available on any podcast listening platform. If you like what we are doing, please subscribe, review, and tell your friends. Season 3 of Afterglow continues on Monday, December 16th with ski mountaineer and environmental activist Caroline Gleick.